several years ago, Marsh and I went to go see a movie entitled Contact with Jodie Foster. It's a classic by now, and I know that many of you may have seen it, but boy, there were certain messages that have just always resonated with me. There was a movie about a, a lady named Ellie. When she was just a child, her mother died. And so it became just she and her father. But he was a wonderful dad. His hobby was astronomy. He bought Ellie a telescope, and together they would go out at night and they would look up into the heavens, they would look at the stars, they would talk about the universe. She so loved her father. And then quite suddenly, when she was 10 years old, he had a heart attack and he died. And now Ellie was all alone. And with those two grief moments, she became very distant with other people. Ellie grew up and she decided to make astronomy her profession. She managed to get a grant so that she would really spend her time trying to look into the heavens and make contact with any other kind of intelligent life force that was out there in the universe. Ellie had become a scientist. She wanted to know what was there, what you could prove. She believed the universe had been created by the Big Bang. She believed that we came about through evolution. For Ellie, there really was no room for God. No, she was a scientist. And as the show goes on, she winds up developing a relationship. A relationship with a man who also loved looking into the heavens. He loved looking at the, the stars and, and the moon. But lo and behold, as she got to know him better, she discovered he was also a minister. He did believe in God. And that became a real struggle within their relationship. When it came to the issue of the Big Bang, he didn't have a problem with that or evolution. He said he really didn't know, but he would let science find things out, and whatever it found was fine with him. For him, God was the creator. God was still the one who breathed in the breath of life. Well, one night there in Washington, D.C., they're at a party, and there's a very poignant scene. They walked out on the balcony. The lights were shining. The stars were twinkling above. They stood on the balcony, and she turned and said, Have you ever thought that maybe there is no God? Then maybe it's just because we couldn't explain things we needed to make up God? Maybe because we were afraid. We found ourselves afraid, and we needed to be comforted, and so... We created God? He thought for a moment, looked at her and said, No, no, I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine living in a world where there is no God. She looked at him and said, But how? How can you prove there's a God? He smiled and said, Did you love your father? Boy, she bristled. I mean, that was a, that was a touchy point. That was an emotional spot. You know that I loved my father then prove it. And it faded to black. And I always remember that moment because it said so clearly to me, you know, the things that matter most in life, the things that really are going to determine the way you live life, things like love and God, they're the things you can't prove. Those are the matters that lie within, the matters of the heart. This morning, I want to bring to conclusion this sermon series, What Lies Within. Ever since we started six weeks ago with Ash Wednesday, since we began the season of Lent, we've been talking about 
how you and I can't change a lot that lies out there. We can't go back and change the past, and it's easy to have regrets. We can't change what lies in the future. We fear that we may not be able to deal with it. But what we've discovered is that what lies in the past and what lies in the future are really small matters compared to what lies within. For it's what lies within our heart that really affects the way that you and I are going to live life. Like that first Easter morning when the two women were headed to the tomb. We know that when the women were headed to the tomb, they came with guilt over what had happened in the past. They came with fear about what might happen in the future until they discovered what was lying within the tomb. It was empty. An angel had come and rolled back the stone. And understand, the angel rolled back the stone of the tomb not so Jesus could get out, but so the women could see what lies within. Because the message of what was lying within an empty tomb would change their hearts and the way that they would live life forever. It changes the way you and I live life. The message that we find in an empty tomb. That's what I want us to look at this morning. And I think there's three things to see. First of all, the women came to the tomb with guilt. And what they found was a message of forgiveness. They felt guilty. You know, whenever somebody dies, you just kind of start looking back and you think about all the things that you did wrong, the things you said, the times you got angry. It's really interesting. When somebody dies, isn't it easy to look back and start feeling guilty about what you've done? Or you start feeling guilty about what you didn't do. The women were able to look back at the mistakes they had made and how everybody deserted Jesus in his moment of need in Gethsemane. But they also started thinking about all the things they didn't do. I mean, why didn't we pick up on Judas? Why didn't we see what was happening? On Friday, why didn't we help get the crowd yelling for Jesus rather than for Barabbas? There had to be that moment they looked at and began to think, what did we fail to do? And they felt so guilty. I think guilt is one of those emotions we all struggle with over the things we've done and the things we have not done. But when you come to the tomb, you hear a message of forgiveness. The women would be told, Jesus will meet you in Galilee, as he told you. Go tell his disciples. He will see you there. When they arrived in Galilee, Jesus was not there to condemn them, berate them, to judge them. He was there to love them. What they discovered was, that when their love failed, God's love didn't. When they had chose to desert, God didn't. You could come to the tomb and lay down the guilt so that you might experience forgiveness. Some of you may have seen a story I came across recently. I thought it was kind of an interesting story about a man who owned a pizza restaurant. And just a month or so ago, he, he got an anonymous letter and I want to read you the letter that he received. It said, Dear Sir, back in 2002, I bounced a check at your pizza shop. I was going through a very difficult time financially and was at the end of my rope. I had no money and a hungry child at home, so I wrote a check that I knew would not be honored by my bank. I'm not making excuses for my behavior. I'm just applying some context. 
I think of this often, and I'm incredibly ashamed and embarrassed about my behavior. I have visited your store several times in the last few years, and I've always wanted to confess and ask you to forgive me, but I've not been able to summon up the courage, so I just eat my pizza and leave. You know, I've worked hard, and I've built up a solid business over the last decade, and I feel that it's my responsibility to remedy the situation. I hope there are no hard feelings. I've enclosed a money order for $54.39. I came to this amount by assuming the original order was $20 and then adding 8% interest compounded yearly for the last 13 years. Thank you. Well, when the restaurant owner got this, he, he just looked at it and he had no idea who the person was. He certainly had forgotten all about that bad check so long ago. But what he thought about was, here is a man who has carried this burden of guilt for the last 13 years. And it continues to bother him. So he thought about it. What he decided to do is he took this letter and decided to frame it and hang it up on the wall. But before he did, he wrote across the front of the letter, you are forgiven. And then he framed it and hung it on the wall, hoping that one day... Maybe this man would come back into the restaurant. He would sing it hanging on the wall and be able to hear the message. You are forgiven. It's the message that you and I come together this morning to hear as we look into the empty tomb. We bring our guilt for all that has happened in the past. But we're able to hear. You are forgiven. You're set free to live. Secondly, the women came to the tomb with fear and what they received was a message of hope. They came with fear for all the things now that might happen. How would they deal with all these things in the future? Their dreams had been shattered. The way they expected life to go had changed. They were afraid. But what they received was a message of hope. The tomb was empty. It was a statement that God's love is stronger than even death. I love the old statement that says, if you're not afraid to die, then you can't be afraid to live. When you're not afraid to die, you're not afraid to live. Paul would say, I know that there is nothing in life or death. There's no angels, no principalities, nothing present, nothing to come that can separate us from the love of God. The empty tomb was supposed to say nothing separates us from the love of God. Nothing. And God's love is strong enough to overcome even death. You don't have to be afraid. There is hope that even when life is hard, you can hang on. The amazing thing is when you know that love of God in the difficult situations... You're going to find that even in the hard times, there are things to be grateful for. What you're going to find is you can still know joy, even though life is so hard. And when you know joy and you live in gratitude, you're going to find you're not afraid that there is this spirit of hope. It is the hope that comes because of the love of God that nothing can separate us from it. 
And let me tell you, that changes the way you live because of what lies within. I don't know if you've seen the story of a young lady who's living this right now so very well. Her name is Lauren Hill. Her story started really about a year and a half ago in October of 2013. Lauren was just turning 18 years old. She lived in Indiana and she loved playing basketball for her high school. And she'd gotten an offer to go to Mount St. Joseph University and to play basketball there. And she decided on her 18th birthday she wanted to make that memorable. And so that was the day she called the coach to say, I commit to come and play basketball there. Well, she was thrilled. They were thrilled. She got into her senior year. They, they started their practice that fall for basketball, but something was wrong. I mean, Lauren just wasn't running as fast. Her ball handling skills just weren't as sharp. She started to feel dizzy at times. One day she's playing there playing a game, and I mean, she fell. She got smacked in the eye, terrible black eye. She felt part of her face was numb, thought she must have a concussion. They went to the doctor and did an MRI, and what they found was she had DIPG. It's a rare form of pediatric brain cancer, inoperable, with a zero survivable rate. She was 18. This pediatric cancer happens to children five to seven years old. Lauren was 18. She didn't understand. It happens to five to seven-year-olds. Because it is kind of rare, there's not a lot of research that's been done on it, not money that's been donated to work on it. They knew little about treatments. They said, you have maybe two years to live. She came from a family of faith. She was a person of faith. And she made the decision that she wasn't going to live with just grief. That she wanted to embrace life in whatever time she had. She wasn't going to spend these last days afraid. She wanted to live. To live as fully as she could in the moment. So she said, can I still play basketball? And he said, well, you're going to be taking chemotherapy. You can do whatever you feel you can do. And she went out that fall to try to play. And the team wrapped their arms around her. And she participated as she could. When it came to the next spring, though, the tumor was getting worse. And the doctor said, you know, the sad thing is, this disease is not talked about. It needs a face. And Lauren decided she needed to be the face. The voice for all those children who could not speak, who did not understand what was happening to them. And so she decided, I want to play a basketball game this next fall. One game in college. She was determined to make it. She decided to create a foundation to raise money for research on this disease. She called her coach where she had committed there at, at, Saint, at Mount St. Joseph. And he said, absolutely, you come. Come the fall, she went to school. But in September, she had an MRI run and they said, we're going to have to change our prognosis. We're not sure you'll make it past December. <coughs> when the coach heard that, he called the NCAA. Called the NCAA and, and said, we want to move our opening game from the end of November to November the 2nd, the beginning of the month. And we're supposed to be playing um, at another college, but could they come and play here? And the NCAA agreed. 
And so it was, Lauren went public with her story about what she was going through and how she was dying. But she had come up with her own motto that said, never give up. Yes, life is tough, but you never give up. You live in a spirit of hope. You live in a spirit of gratitude. And so it was, they announced they're going to have the game. Usually they had a hundred. That was the average attendance. A hundred would come to watch this girls' basketball team. Boy, they could tell that wasn't going to be the case. So Xavier in Cincinnati said, why don't you come use our arena? It holds 10,000. When they put the tickets on sale, they sold out in one hour. One hour. 10,000 tickets. The day came. She climbed onto that bus, and as they pulled out, so many people were standing there cheering and shouting and waving to Lauren. When she came into the stadium, she would be the starting um, forward. She would be announced number five, uh, the fifth person, number 22. And when they announced her name and she stepped onto that court, it truly was her dream. This place was rocking. They'd been designing a play. If they got the tip, they knew what they wanted to do. And sure enough, they got the tip, and they had a pick, and she came around the side and down low. They passed her the ball, and she shot and made it. Two points. The first two points of the basketball season for all colleges in 2014, and people went wild. They immediately helped her off the court to be able to sit down. When it came to the end of the game, 48 seconds left, they put her back in. Again, she got down low. They managed to get a pass, and she shot, and she scored the last two points of the game. And when it was over, she came out onto the center court, and she simply said, this is the happiest day of my life. Thank you. All I can say is thank you. She would choose to live a life that would be measured in terms of weeks, not years, in gratitude and in joy. To embrace each moment with a spirit of hope. When you and I come and look inside the empty tomb, we don't confront fear. What we confront is a message of hope that we can hold on to live life and even in the most difficult moments, to know that word of, of gratitude and joy, it's still a moment of hope. And third, when the women came to the tomb, they came alone. They felt so alone, but what they discovered was a presence. They came looking for death, and what they found was life. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. He is alive. If you flip over to the book of John, you'll read how in John he makes a big deal about how when they look inside the tomb, they see the burial cloth lying there. Whenever someone died, they would wrap you in a burial cloth tightly, more like a mummy, and they said when they looked into the tomb, there they saw the burial cloth. Not like it was unwound, like Jesus had been in a coma, unwrapped it, and he managed to get out of the tomb. Not like someone had come into the tomb to steal the body and unwrap the body and lie the cloth down. No, the whole idea was the angel rolled back the stone, not for Jesus to get out, but so the women could see within. To see the burial cloth lying there, 
to understand that somehow Jesus was transformed. It's the mystery of our faith. We don't try to prove it. We don't try to explain it. We understand what the woman understood that day. They would know the presence of the risen Christ. That he was transformed to where he was not trapped to be in one place at one moment, not trapped by time and space, but he could be with all of his followers wherever they could be all the time. The promise that Christ is with all of us all the time, wherever we are, that's the promise of the resurrection, that that spirit has been transformed so that you and I discover we're not alone. We don't have to be afraid. Yes, life is hard, but you're not alone. You don't have to be afraid. We know the presence of the risen Christ. I told you how last year in December I decided to call Rachel Rimmon. Such a wonderful lady. We had her to speak here at the church a number of years ago. She's written a couple books. I have loved them so much and came to know her and appreciated her so much. I called her last year in December and hadn't spoken to her in years and we had such a good conversation. So I've had her on my mind and I started working on this sermon and I, I thought of Rachel. She's now in her mid-70s. The story happened 50 years ago when she was 24. 24 years old, she'd graduated from medical school and was now in her first year of residency at a hospital. She was the low man on the totem pole. She had the night shift. And she said one of her patients was a, a young girl named Gloria. Gloria was 15 years old. And she said Gloria had leukemia. Fifty years ago, we didn't have all the drugs we have today. Fifty years ago, we weren't sure how to deal with leukemia. And what Gloria was going through is she was having to have a chemotherapy every four hours, 24 hours a day around the clock, day after day. Every four hours, another dose of chemotherapy. And so Rachel said she would come at 2 o'clock in the morning, had to wake her up, stick in the needle, and give her her chemo. She'd come back at 6 o'clock and wake her up and give her her chemo. But she said what really was bad was that she couldn't talk to Gloria, really. Fifty years ago, you may remember, fifty years ago, doctors did not tell patients about their prognosis. Fifty years ago, doctors did not tell you what they thought was happening to you. They didn't talk about your illness with you, and you certainly didn't do it with children. On her chart, it said clearly, do not speak to this child about her illness or prognosis on orders of the doctor and the family. Just kind of how we did it. Somehow we didn't think people could deal with the truth. And so she came in day after day to give her this chemo. And she said she felt so alone. It was so lonely. And then one night when she came at 2 a.m. and gave her the, her treatment, stuck her with that needle, Gloria looked at her and said, Dr. Remen, am I dying? And Rachel said, I tried to think of all those professional words I'd been taught. But I couldn't find them. And she finally said, Gloria, we're doing all that we can for you. But if your cell count continues to go up, yes, you will die. And Gloria said, I knew it. 
And she closed her eyes. Do you think much about dying? Yes, that's what I think about all the time. Are you sad or afraid? Yes, I'm afraid. I don't know what it's like to die. Have you ever seen anybody die? And Rachel said, yes. Yes, I have seen them die. And I can tell you that people like you, what I've seen is it's very peaceful. It doesn't seem to be painful. She began talking about what it was like to die. And then what they discovered was Gloria and her family, they went to church occasionally. She didn't realize that people like Rachel and more than half the population around the world believe in some sort of afterlife, an eternal life. And so she wanted to hear about eternal life. What would that be like? So what about God? What's it like to die? And so these two women began to talk. And Rachel said it made her feel so much better. And when she came in the next night at 2 o'clock, Gloria wanted to talk again. And here are these two women, less than eight years apart in age. It was more like two friends talking about the meaning of life. What's been the purpose of life? What is it like to die? What about eternal life? They talked. Rachel realized this was dangerous. If she were to tell her parents and her parents got mad, if the attending physician were to find out, Rachel said, I would be fired. I knew that I could be fired. If people found out we were having this conversation, I could be fired. But it was Gloria who said, thank you so much for these nights. I don't feel so alone. And I don't feel so afraid. So one day Rachel decided to really take a chance. And she said, Gloria, you need to talk to your parents about this. Do my parents know that I'm dying? Yes. Yes, they do. They just don't know how to talk to you about it. The next night when Rachel came in, Gloria was excited. She said, I had a good talk with my mom and dad today. I told them, I know I'm dying. And I ought to tell you, I feel guilty. I feel like I'm letting you down. That as your daughter at 15, I'm dying. I, I've been feeling guilty. And she said, I have wonderful parents. And they started saying, no, 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 you're, no, please. We love you. We wouldn't change anything. We are so glad we have had you. No, you're not letting us down. She said, my mom cried and cried and cried. My dad, who isn't very demonstrative, he cried. My dad started telling me how much he loved me, how proud he was to have me as his daughter. It was a very special night. Well, each day, her mom and dad and Gloria started talking. They started talking about life after death talking about what it means to die, talking about how they believed they would see each other again one day. And then they started to plan her funeral. And her father brought in a picture to say, this is where you're going to be buried. 
and I'm going to be buried on one side and your mom on the other side. We're all going to be there together. She said, Dr. Raymond, I got to tell you, it was sad, sad, sad. And yet, I no longer felt alone and I wasn't afraid. Rachel started thinking, maybe, maybe they don't know we had this conversation. They hadn't complained. The physician had not called her in on the carpet. She had never told Gloria, don't tell anybody. But it seemed like no one was saying anything. It was only a couple days later at 6 a.m. that Gloria slipped into a coma and her mom and dad were there standing by her side holding her hand when she died. The physician was called and he came in to sign the death certificate and he came and he found Gloria. He came and found Rachel and said, come along, this could be a, a teaching session for you. They went back into the family room and there was the mom and dad and they had been crying. And the doctor sat down and he said, I just got to tell you, your great parents, you have been there. You have been there. You've been great parents. You did all that you could. And I got to tell you, your daughter, she was so brave. She was so brave. And to the end, she did not know that she was dying. So she never was afraid. And they all sat there in silence in this family room. And for the first time, the father turned and looked right at Rachel. And when he looked at her, he said, Thank you. Thank you. We weren't afraid. And we weren't alone. The message of the empty tomb that the women discovered, that we discover, is we're not alone. We know the presence of the risen Christ. So we don't have to be afraid in life or in death. We are not alone. We do not have to be afraid because the tomb is empty. Because He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.